Hey everybody, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. It is a very, very special episode uh, for me in particular for one reason, which is that Andrew Seligson is sitting in front of me. He's here, he's in Iowa, we're recording this in the same physical presence. How do you feel about that, Andrew? Uh, I'll tell you, <laughs> I'm, I'm overcome with sort of Midwestern emotions. <laughs> Uh, and because I'm in the Midwest, I have trouble talking about my emotions now. So yep. uh, yeah, that's, that's just keep yeah. them down in there. I, I will admit though, I got nervous when you said it was a very special episode because I associate that with like um, you know the episode where we talk about difficult issues. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like a very special blossom or whatever that was. Uh, oh, like that kind of issue. Yeah, I was worried. No, we're not going to talk about okay, that. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. Um, Jr., not to let you feel left out, we wish you were here. Well, you know, I've often said that Iowa is one of my favorite states. I love every time I get to go visit Iowa and see you, Emily. So I am a little jealous. And Andrew, we need to get you here in Indiana ahead of when you will be here next year. I would love to see you here so that we can record together and make Emily feel jealous. I I would love to do that. that and uh, No, and I am excited to be here. We're visiting several different campuses. Yep. We're doing a civic action planning workshop at Iowa State tomorrow. Yeah, we've so got teams from stuff. across the state coming together to do some action planning. Really excited about that. And JR, I will take him to Ray Gun t-shirts yes. this afternoon. Oh, it, will, it will change your life. I may own several shirts from there now because they have a great online store as well. And they are not a supporter of the podcast in any way. <laughs> that, no, we're not getting not, not yet. I we're not getting kickbacks, but maybe we can um, arrange that. Uh, and they are, you know, a small business very engaged in the community. So I, I do feel like it's relevant. All right. There we go. We feel <laughs> uh, we feel good about promoting yeah. it. We're, we're all for community economic development. Exactly. That's right. Um, so that's what's going on here. But we need to get really right into our interviews because we have two great ones this week. Um, first and foremost, I had the uh, great pleasure of getting to interview Robin Saha. He is um, an associate professor in environmental studies at the University of Montana. Um, and he, uh, well, I'll let Andrew introduce um, his special connection to the Compact Nation, but um, it was just great to hear his perspective. And I'm really excited for everybody to get to hear it too. So we interviewed him because... Because, there we go. Because Robin Saha is the 2016 winner of the Thomas Ehrlich Award for Civic, Civically Engaged Faculty. Sorry, I had trouble getting that out. Uh, so that award is one of the highlights of what we do at Campus Compact. We each year recognize one faculty member who is doing an exemplary job in connecting engaged teaching, engaged research, and engaged action for the public good. And, you know, for me, the sweet spot is a faculty member who you really can't tell at any given moment which of those things they're doing. So their students are involved in their research, their research is serving the public, and it's all a kind of bundle of activities through which students are learning, they're, they're doing research, they're participating in public life, they're making change. And I think you'll hear in this conversation, uh, Robin is a terrific example of that. So we solicit nominees every spring. We have a very rigorous review process. Um, and you know, having been involved in that process, I can say that Robin Saha emerged from a very strong group of candidates 
this year. So we will give the award out at the Continuums of Service Conference in Denver in April. And uh, I think it was great that we had the opportunity to, uh, to chat with her. Yeah, so let's go right to that interview uh, and then we'll be back. So I am really excited today to welcome Robin Saha to our podcast, and I'm going to go ahead and let him um, introduce a little bit about uh, his work and his background. Wow, thanks, Emily. It's great to be with you and your audience. Thanks for having me. I uh, would start by just saying that a lot of my work and background is really driven by a strong belief about the importance of community engagement and the notion that it's really vital to social justice. And that's really a core value of my work that drives a lot of what I do. I think that you can't really be of true service to those you know, whose basic needs are not met without engaging in communities uh, in which they're embedded. I think that also to approach social, social justice in any other way is really to risk being paternalistic and uh, can create lasting dependencies uh, if you come in as a savior and try to help people, it doesn't really help them to help themselves. And so this you know, core value of engaging with communities at, for, around social justice uh, requires really an abiding respect for those who don't enjoy as many privileges um, as I do. Um, I come from an upbringing in a biracial mixed class family. I grew up in a diverse community of Cleveland, Ohio. And I have to say that, I, well, I grew up in the 60s, and, uh, you know, it was a time of turbulence. Our river caught on fire in Cleveland. Yeah. Uh, there were uh, civil rights riots in the mm-hmm. streets, blocks from our apartment. And uh, that time when civil rights, the women's movement, the anti-war and environmental movements were, uh, you know, developing, uh, really had a, a strong impression on me as a youth. And those things really shaped my views and my values and instilled values were also instilled by my parents uh, and just receiving a a humanistic education that's centered around people and people's needs. You know, I've never given up on the things that the civil rights movement has stood for, the promise of a fair and just society where people can thrive and, you know, not just survive. (laughs) For me, it's not just about Um, having basic needs met, but it's also about people being fulfilled and and having meaningful lives, uh, rewarding lives. And, and, you know, that extends to my students as well. And so I've dedicated myself to helping achieve environmental and social justice for all. And that is um, what drives my work uh, in teaching and research and service. Uh, Growing up in Cleveland, I was, you know, I love being outdoors. I was aware of all the pollution. And when I was 18, I went to go uh, work out in Yellowstone. It was my first time out west. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was really transformative. And and I I just have to say, spending time in a in wilderness, uh, really, it just had a profound impact on me and my love of the outdoors just just uh, grew by leaps and bounds. And so that helped me figure out that uh, I wanted to study environmental studies. And so I went to California. I was an environmental studies and planning major. And after that, I worked in multicultural environmental education center in Northern California, where we brought children from 
all different backgrounds and communities. Uh, Bayview Hunters Point in, in San Francisco area, there were, um, you know, an African-American uh, community. We had kids from the rich suburbs. We had Asian-Americans, Latinos. We, it was just a mix of races and classes. And uh, having those kids out in the environment uh, really taught me that people come from at the environment from just so many different perspectives. We would take the kids out in the woods, for example, and they would think sitting on the forest floor was dirty. And I was like, <laughs> gosh, you know, like, wait a minute. This is this is in the redwoods. This is as clean as it gets, folks. And so it, it came, I came to realize that, uh, you know, everyone has different experiences of the environment and different perspectives on 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 the environment and different ways that they want to um, improve their environments. So uh, so that kind of set the seeds for me to uh, get into environmental justice and interested in that. And and my research is really devoted to to environmental justice and understanding the different ways that uh, environmental injustice manifests. So we're talking about the unfair distributions of the goods and bads in societies, and as well as understanding the causes and consequences of these uh, racial and socioeconomic disparities in environmental quality. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's also access to environmental goods. So and being able to enjoy parks, clean air, clean water, those types of things. So my research has really been devoted to seeking ways to develop uh, means to address those injustices through policy change, through collaborative approaches with communities that foster communities to become empowered and able to be voices on their own behalf. Absolutely. That's so interesting. Um... And one of the reasons that we're interviewing you on the podcast today is that you were selected as the 2016 Thomas Ehrlich Civically Engaged Faculty uh, Award winner. Um, and that really focuses on bringing together teaching, research, and community partnerships. You've touched on that a little bit. Um, why do you think it's important to bring those things together? Has that, is that something you've always done? Was there a point at which you started to see the impact that could have? What What is... Um, how is that formed for you? Right. Well, um, first of all, I think combining teaching, research, and service is a really effective way that faculty and students can, and by extension, our academic institutions can advance the public good. And in my department, I just you know speaking from how it's worked for me, um, in my environmental studies department, our students come in with so much passion. Uh, they want to change the world for the better. They, uh, they're just looking for opportunities to make a difference. And so by, by structuring the classroom experiences in ways that they can work on real world problems, you really, you know, I'm able to, to give them uh, some tools and some skills that allow them to grapple with uh, environmental issues and problems that really prepares them for the types of jobs that they get into. And uh, a lot of um, the ways that we address environmental problems, it, you know, certainly environmental science is important, but uh, civic competencies are so important. Those skills about 
how to get information, about how to analyze information, how to communicate it effectively, how to understand and analyze power. Uh, those are all types of skills that uh, through practical projects my students work on. Uh, and ultimately, we're teaching them and our, you know, my, my peers and colleagues are teaching students how to be effective change agents. And our program, our motto is that we create thinkers who can do and doers who can think. And so, you know, it's not just about going out and doing without um, analyzing, thinking, researching the situation. Uh, and um, likewise, in the process of doing, you reflect on that. You reflect on what you did well, what you what you could have done better. You get feedback. And so uh, doing that for students to, to do that in a supportive environment where, you know, they can they can make some mistakes and but they can learn from them as well. Absolutely. Gives them the confidence. I think really what's what's also important is that uh, that type of work working in communities where students are, you know, rolling up their sleeves, partnering, holding hands with, uh, maybe dragging some people by the arms too, uh, really advances um, the social value of, of our academic institutions. It it's, uh, helps communities solve problems and address um, pressing needs uh, and, and also uh, generates knowledge that's that's useful and meaningful so i a lot of america these days you know emily is, sees university as disconnected i think and yeah. has started to question their value and so i i think that teaching and learning and expanding the university beyond our campus boundaries i, I love the idea of a community <laughs> uh, to like borrow that. that phrase from one of my friends and colleagues, Beverly Wright, uh, is, a, is a great way of, of uh, you know, thinking about the role that universities play as in, institutions embedded in the community and not, not just ivory towers with walls, right? Uh, and likewise, I think a lot of America is skeptical at this time of science. And so the community-based participatory research that I do uh, helps in co-generating knowledge with communities that uh, really builds trust and builds bridges and can really build goodwill in showing the positive role university students, faculty can play in communities. So um, that that's an exciting endeavor <laughs> and it excites me and I really enjoy it and I think students value learning in those ways uh, and get a lot out of it and really prepare themselves. Our, our students have uh, used their experiences in our program um, as springboards to really rewarding and careers where they're making a huge difference. Uh, many are executive directors of, of nonprofit organizations or working in government, uh, even in and businesses on sustainability. So uh, I, I firmly believe that you shouldn't have to wait for your first job to develop some skills that you're going to be using and needing and, and making some mistakes and learning from them and gaining some confidence along the way. 
Absolutely. Well, let's let's stay on that topic of students for a minute. I I what really comes across to me from talking to you and reading um, things that you've written is that you seem to get a lot of personal and professional satisfaction from your work with students. And you talk about not having to wait until their first job. What are ways that we in higher education could do a better job of tapping into students' ideas and energy to help them engage really as agents of social change as they're learning? Wow, well, that's a great question, Emily. I, you know, first of all, I, I'm so inspired by what students can do and find it so rewarding to see them succeed that I, I think it's really about giving them the opportunities and and they actually create opportunities for me in, the, in return. I, I like to say, you know, I put the wins under their sails and they in turn put them under mine. And so part of that is, is putting students in the driver's seat, I think. Students come in with a lot of passion and interests and if we give them the opportunity to explore those interests uh, and, and structured opportunities and support them, uh, you know, the sky's the limit. Um, I think that at the same time, uh, they need to have responsibility and challenge. They need to be given something to accomplish, something meaningful that they feel makes a difference. Uh, you know, last, last semester I, I tasked students with, for example, with uh, um, looking into solid waste and management, recycling waste reduction issues in on our campus, in the city of Missoula and in the state, and asked them to, uh, well, one of the, one of the uh, prompts for this, or one of the uh, reasons is that our city just passed a zero waste initiative and um, is just beginning the planning process and thinking about how we can move towards uh, being a zero waste city. And uh, students were tasked with uh, researching current efforts, talking to stakeholders, finding out uh, what uh, types of initiatives might be most effective at achieving waste management goals and moving towards zero waste and uh, presented their reports to city leaders and and legislators and uh, you know a couple of them said gosh thanks for helping me learn how to make change happen and and be they they said thanks for you know showing us how to make a difference in the world and and I think you know maybe we have a unique group of students, but I, I think that there's a whole group of students out there who don't know they can make a difference. And then when they start to see that, some some lights go off and, and uh, doors open for them. Another example of ways that students created opportunities that then built on themselves uh, that I can offer, um, there was a student who, actually he's, he's deceased now, and he died tragically in a plane accident. Uh, through some critical analysis of uh, the university, our campus, he was asking questions, for example, about, well, why aren't we doing more on uh, on addressing our carbon footprint on our, in other words, our, our greenhouse gas emissions and our uh, mm -hmm. and moving towards renewable energy? And through his analysis, he figured out what the real problem is that there's there's not money to invest in renewable energy and in energy conservation. And that the ironic part about it is that you actually save money 
in the long run if you put a little bit of money invest money in in retro energy retrofits and conservation projects and whatnot so he came up with this idea and pushed it through student government and the board of regents of having a sustainability fee and creating what was called a revolving energy loan fund and after he passed away um it, it did succeed and it's a it's a student fee and it's a fund that brings in about sixty thousand dollars a semester and after he passed away his name was sunny class we renamed it after him and it continues to this day and it it provides a pool of money to support energy conservation efficiency renewable energy projects on campus and students can submit proposals for ideas uh, and get them approved i've taught a number of classes where students have developed these proposals and have had them funded. And in this way, successive generations of students have made uh, lasting contributions to uh, the sustainability of our campus, uh, to reducing our university's carbon footprint and helping achieve our climate action goals under the American University President's Climate Commitment. That's fantastic. What a, I mean, certainly a tragic story, but really a wonderful and hopeful story too. And I certainly believe we need to do more to tell those kinds of stories. I mean, what a powerful impact that student was able to have on the university. You know, a lot of the time the conversation is about the impact we're having on students, but that can work both ways if we, if we let it. Absolutely. And I, so, and I think, uh, you know, so that's there's this process of learning from students and and refining how you do service learning, and uh, I think one of the other lessons I learned from Sonny is that, and well, first of all, he's just a great example of how putting students in the driver's seat of letting them pursue their ideas of supporting their ideas uh, can lead to some meaningful meaningful changes and uh, create opportunities for other students. Well, Robin, it's been really great talking to you. I appreciate you so much being willing to come on and give some of your expertise and talk about, you know, just the approach you've taken and what you've learned from that. So happy to join you today, Emily. I appreciate the chance to speak with you. So welcome back, everybody. Uh, great interview. Um, hope you enjoyed it. Um, JR, what stood out to you? Well, first, let's just say I would have been one of those kids afraid to sit on the forest floor. When he talked about that experience, I was like, yeah, that's me. That is dirty. But I think it's... Oh, my gosh. So that's hilarious because my, my reaction was pretty much the opposite. Growing up, the only vacations my family took were camping. So when I got to college and realized people stayed in hotels, I was really surprised by that. And uh, yeah, so I, I guess I, that, was, that was a little surprising to me. So it's interesting to hear that you identify. Yeah, you know, we weren't really a camping family when I grew up. I wasn't, I mean, if you can imagine, I was not I much, uh, right? I was not much <laughs> of an outdoor person. We did stay in hotels, although we stayed mostly at Nights Inns, which are kind of shady these days a little bit, if you're familiar with those too. So. Uh, you know, I think it's really all about perspectives and the lens from which we view the world. And when he talked about that, reminded me that so much of our work is about challenging and supporting lenses so that students gain new perspectives, but they can also validate the ones that they already hold. And so I thought that was a really great reminder. 
it made me think about uh, many, many, many moons ago when I oversaw alternative break trips. I had one student who changed his major to dietetics because we were in a really rural area of uh, the country. And it was a lens from which none of us had really viewed before in quite that way. And he was really struck by uh, the scarcity of food in that area and it being a rural food desert. And that made him change to dietetics. And now he focuses on rural poverty and rural uh, poverty food deserts. So it just made me think about the lens from which we view our worlds. And oftentimes when we're taken into those worlds, it can uh, switch our lens but revalidate some of our other lenses. So, you know, I would love to sit on the floor of a forest now. I mean, the way he described it, uh, about how it's really right the cleanest place. It sounded so romantic, maybe. I mean, I would maybe put a blanket down first. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, but that's, you know, I think you hit on one of the more interesting things from his interview is just this idea of student agency, student empowerment. Um, And I was definitely super interested in what he had to say around advocacy. I think it can sometimes be tricky, but I think he really hit on how you do it without that trickiness and really the heart of advocacy, which is that you can't fake advocacy. People can really only truly advocate on things that they actually believe and care about. Um, And so he really focused on that, talking about how do you help students find the things they do care about and the solutions that make sense to them and then advocate, right? So, I, you know, I don't know. Andrew, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think the, the fact, just as he was saying, like giving them the skills to understand an issue, to uh, have data that informs their thinking about it, and then the skills to advocate for a policy to shape uh, the way you communicate, to engage in spoken and written communication, et cetera. But then in the middle, that question about what you judge is the right direction to go, that has to come from the students and that that's how he builds that into his teaching. Uh, So I thought that was really important. One one other thing I just wanted to mention is I just thought it was interesting also that I think sometimes when we talk about environmental justice, people, and a lot of his focus, and he made this clear, is about the evidence that communities of color and low-income communities are disproportionately burdened by the environmental negative byproducts of the way we live. But it was also clear that it's not just communities of color. So, you know, rural white communities in Montana are facing many of these challenges. And that the real issue is fairness, is who who gets the burdens, who gets the benefits, and are the burdens being reasonably equally distributed regardless of who you are. So I just thought that was an interesting, um, an interesting thing. Yeah, he had a really good way of describing that. I agree. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think those issues you know, they show up in interesting ways in the, the next interview we have. I had the chance to sit down with Yaz Najibi, who is a student at Green Mountain College in Vermont and is a Newman Civic Fellow. Newman Civic Fellow is Campus Compact's year-long fellowship for community-connected students. These are students who've taken action on their own campuses and in their own communities and shown a real commitment and are brought together by Campus Compact with you know, other students like them from across the country. They have the chance to come together through in-person convenings, online learning, mentorship, and a set of kind of dedicated opportunities set aside for them. And so when Yaz was with us for our national convening, we sat down and talked about 
Yaz's interest in environmental issues and environmental justice. And I think Yaz just is a great illustration of the kind of student Robin is talking about who is learning about important issues in courses and then you know, forms opinions of their own and goes after it and learns to work with people very different from themselves and makes change in the world. So it was, it was for me really interesting to hear about the work Yaz has done. Uh, and it, it's also just a great illustration of what the Newman Civic Fellowship is all about. So hopefully people will be motivated to nominate students when they hear about this. Yeah, so that's coming up. When are the nominations due? The nominations are due by March 3, 2017. The nominations come from Campus Compact member presidents or chancellors, but anybody on a campus can suggest to a president, hey, this would be a great student to nominate. Yeah, so compact.org, uh, check out more information about that and how you can um, select a student from your institution. So let's go right to that interview. I am here in our Boston headquarters with Yaz Najibi. Yaz is a junior at Green Mountain College in Pulteney, Vermont, and is a Newman Civic Fellow here in town for our first convening of our Newman Civic Fellows from across the United States. So we're really excited to have Yaz with us, and we thought we would talk a little bit about environmental studies, environmental justice, and what the work looks like on the ground in Vermont. So Yaz, thank you so much for joining us on the Compact Nation podcast. My pleasure. Glad to be here. So let's get started uh, and kind of jump right in. What are some exciting things that you're doing that kind of cash out your values, your commitment to environmental justice? Um, well, I'll start with saying that environmental justice and social justice are inextricably linked. So I don't see myself just as an environmental justice organizer. I feel like I also do a lot of social justice work, and I also uh, try to incorporate social justice within the environmental justice work I do. Um, what really cashes out on my values that I'm doing right now, and is definitely a play of the two issues, um, is fighting the Vermont Gas Systems Pipeline, which is a frack gas pipeline coming through Vermont. Um, fracking is illegal in Vermont, but a big Canadian company wanted to transport frack gas through the state, so we decided it was a great idea. Well, by we, I mean the Public Service Board, so actually not the people at all. Um, and what I've been doing is working with some um, older people in the community who dealt with the first phase of the pipeline and were treated really badly by the gas company. Um, and I've started a canvassing program for the third phase of the pipeline. So the gas company didn't tell anyone where the pipeline was going to go because they wanted to keep it a secret. Um, so we talked to some lawyers and some experts in Vermont and tried to decide where we thought they were going to put the third phase. Spent hours like grueling over tax maps, collecting parcel numbers, looking at the electric corridor, Route 7, all the places that it could possibly go, um, digitized all the data, and then made canvassing maps and started a canvassing program. So we have students from Middlebury College. We have students from Greenmount College. We have older members from the Vermont community. I mean, I canvass with 64-year-old women all the time, and they make me delicious apple turnovers. It's great. Um, and what we do is talk to landowners about the pipeline. So we it's a bipartisan initiative. So the, there is the environmental justice issue of the pipeline of frack gas, which is like totally marketed as being cleaner than carbon, which is not true because an extreme amount of methane leaks at well pads, uh, which contributes to overall emissions. And also the emissions of methane are more hazardous to the environment than the emissions of carbon dioxide. Um, so we know that frack gas is not cleaner, but we didn't want to be a bunch of liberal hippies talking to rural Vermonters about a pipeline because we knew that wouldn't be successful. Um, so we leveraged a more bipartisan and social justice component 
which is the fact that the gas company trespasses on people's land, manipulates people, uh, forces people to sign easement agreements, holds eminent domain over people's heads, like very threatening, very coercive, uh, which we learned a lot from the phase one landowners who dealt with all of that. So uh, we canvass people and we tell them, hey, there might be a pipeline in your backyard. Uh, how do you feel about that? And whether or not people are for the pipeline or against the pipeline, we ask them, you know, how would you feel if you came home one day and there was a bunch of gas employees surveying on your land without your permission? Nobody likes that. There's a lot of nimbyism, not in my backyard. People don't want it. Um, so we get those people to file notices against trespass. Um, and we send them to the Natural Resource Agency, um, Secretary Deb Markowitz. And then we also send them to um, the CEO of Vermont Gas Systems, Don Rendell. And we keep one and they keep one for their record. So we file four notices. Um, and what that does is tells the state and tells the gas company that they don't have permission to come on people's land. Um, and that they, if they want to look at people's land and survey it for the pipeline, they need to engage in like civil negotiations um, with the landowners rather than just coming up in their land, showing up at their door and saying, hey, if you don't sign this easement agreement, we'll just take your land through eminent domain anyways, so you might as well. Um, so that's something I've been working on recently, which has been really exciting. So when when you talk about that, I hear a couple of different things. One is an evident level of commitment to you know a set of issues and, and a vision of what a, a good world involves and what it doesn't. But I also hear a ton of knowledge about public policy processes, about organizing strategies, about uh, how just these environmental systems and processes work. And I'm wondering, for you, when you think about where that knowledge comes from, how much of that has happened through your formal academic studies? How much of it has happened because you built skills in those studies that allowed you to gather information on your own? Like, where, Where's that knowledge coming from? Um, it definitely comes from a lot of places. And I think that our greatest tool in the world in general is diversity. Um, and I think that extends through all. I mean, in nature, biodiversity is important. In, in civic places, uh, racial diversity is important. But I think in education, diversity is really important too. And I know that we do a lot of learning outside the classroom. So I learned a lot about environmentalism my freshman year of college when I used to go to George Washington University uh, because I worked as a canvasser for Greenpeace um, and then worked as a campaign coordinator for Greenpeace. So I was working directly on national campaigns and organizing local actions. So I learned a lot about um, Arctic drilling. I learned a lot about palm oil and deforestation. I learned a lot about pesticides and bees. So I had amassed some sort of knowledge about energy infrastructure um, and the evils of corporate entities a lot through my work at Greenpeace. And then um, came to Vermont and came to Green Mountain College and took uh, law and society courses, took policy courses. I'm taking environmental economics courses. Um, and so from that, I've gotten a, a pretty good grasp of policy, especially in Vermont, how things work. Um, and I also have done a, a great deal of integrating what I'm interested in outside of the classroom into the classroom. Um, I, I was doing this um, my sophomore year with a sociology class and any class really that had a sustainable development class as well that had any sort of project base. I would be like, oh, OK, well, I'm finding this pipeline, so I'm going to incorporate it however I can. Um, and that helped me learn a lot because then the pipeline fight was put into the discipline of whatever class I was taking. So I was taking a sustainable development class. Uh, which I was incredibly broad, but talked a lot about the UN sustainability or sustainable development goals um, and relating the pipeline to that globally. And then I took a sociology course um, and brought the pipeline into that and talked about, you know, community organizing and how people react to these things and the value of bipartisanship um, and things like that. Um, 
But a, a huge amount of my learning has just come from the people that I've met. I feel incredibly grateful. I feel like I have so many resources at my hands because, like, I just know so many incredible, intelligent people in Vermont. Um, and a lot of these people know these things because it comes from experience. Um, a lot of what I learned about the Public Service Board and the way that pipelines work in Vermont and the way the process goes politically um, is through the landowners that got screwed over in the first phase by the gas company. Um, just from their own lived experiences and things that they had to do to keep their land or to fight for themselves. Um, and then they pass that knowledge on to us as well. Um, I also, I mean, I go to lots of lectures. I read a lot. I, this is something that is a big part of my life. Um, I was recently on the phone with Dr. Eddie Glaude Jr. Um, and from Princeton, and he was saying that um, this, this justice work, it's not, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. It's a lifestyle. Uh, you, can't, you can't do it on the side. It's not a hobby. And so it's, it's very much a part of my life and everything I, you know, I'm reading This Changes Everything by Naomi Klein. I'm reading about environmental racism. I'm reading all sorts of books that, and everything feels really connected to what I'm doing. So the knowledge comes from a lot of places for sure. Can you talk about how, how all of that connects to the, the environment at Green Mountain, you know, students, faculty, where does this that fit in? Do you find support, nurturance? Are you fighting battles? What's what's your experience like? Um, it's difficult because Green Mountain College was the second college in the country to go carbon neutral. Um, they have a certified organic farm. Um, there's composting in every building. You know, they're very green. We're very green, and we're very proud of it. But uh, we're also at a point where we're sort of like, we've kind of done all we could do, and you know, we wipe our hands and we feel like we have accomplished everything, and there's no work to be done. Um, and that's just not true at all. So what I found was during my sophomore year, I tried to organize against the pipeline with students on campus who were part of an activism club. Um, and at first people seemed really excited about it, but when it came to actually doing work, no one was really invested. So just like a lot of really disengaged people who are strangely jaded by how far that our institution has come, um, because like we've accomplished so much and we're so green that like, it seems really like there's no work to be done. Um, and people sort of seem to be like complacent with that and, and also jaded sometimes. Um, so I had, I struggled with that a lot. Uh, I've received a lot of support from professors on campus. I was actually recognized for the Newman Civic Fellows Award by my sustainable development professor who saw the work I was doing on the pipeline, which I incorporated into the class. Um, and I, I believe that's probably why I, uh, he nominated me for the award, um, so it's like the faculty seem to really be behind things. We've been doing a lot of work um, around the carbon pollution tax to leverage faculty to participate in that, and that seems to be going pretty successfully. But it's hard to organize students. It's really difficult, especially because, like, we're a bunch of 20-somethings, and we're invincible, and we're the center of the world. Uh, and it's really hard to see past that sometimes. But what has been successful um, is instead of kind of I came in with this idea that, like, I wanted to organize the masses and I really wanted to get as many people behind as possible what I was doing. Um, but what I, what I've started doing instead now that I'm in my junior year and things have been going much differently is really identifying key people, um, key people that you may not always like, you may not want to be best friends with, but who are passionate and who are driven uh, and can contribute something to your movement. So I have linked up with several students at my college now who I would never hang out with before. Um, <laughs> And we've been working against the pipeline. We've been canvassing. We're organizing a national day of um, solidarity with Standing Rock and also with our own pipeline, targeting TD Bank, who's an investor in both pipelines. Um, so I've been organizing those students and then also organizing students at Middlebury, organizing students at UVM as well. Um, so it's, 
it's not always easy, but I would encourage anyone, and and this is advice I'm giving to myself, to not be discouraged when you fail the first time. Because I definitely came in and, and failed miserably. I couldn't I couldn't get rally anybody around what I was doing. And it was really disheartening. But you know, you just have to go back to the basics and and you know, restructure, rethink things, and then go back and try again. And we've been incredibly successful. So you know, one of the, the things that I, I kind of hear as a theme in some of what you're saying is a commitment to engage with people who at the front end may not seem similar to you, may not seem like they share your values, may be very differently situated, even with respect to the questions that you're organizing around. And I'm just wondering, you know, we are at a moment in our national history when all of a sudden there's this attention to this question of like, how are we, you know, how do people engage with people who seem to have radically different values and commitments in this environment of intense uh, tension and conflict? And I'm just wondering, what are your reflections about kind of where we sit and what you think we need to do given that? Yeah, that's a really good question and definitely something I've been thinking about. I've I've been feeling a lot of pressure to come up with some words of wisdom as to like how to deal with this political climate. And um, what I've found is that I see value in communicating and engaging with people who are different than you. Um, Like I was saying earlier, I think diversity is our greatest asset. But at the same time, lines need to be drawn. Um, And when people are complicit in hatred and bigotry, homophobia, transphobia, sexism, ableism, you name it, um, that's something that I can't accept. That's something that I, when I see someone who might, for example, my stepmother, who's married to my Muslim immigrant Pakistani father, voted for Donald Trump, uh, and me as like a bisexual trans brown college student, uh, I see like such a, a betrayal um, and it's, it's hard to breach that. And I, I hope that with time that that's something I'll be able to do, but I'd be wrong for me to sit here and say, we should all get along. Let's all hold hands because I have trouble doing that. And I'm struggling to deal with people that I see complicit in hatred. Like I see complicity in, in hatred in all these people. Um, and it's like, it's so difficult and it's so daunting, but, um, the way I look at it and, and this may sound very hippy dippy, but in the face of a government that it exists and has claimed that it will persecute so many of us. Um, and also in the face of the Obama administration, which has deported 3 million illegal immigrants in this country, more than anyone ever before, the Obama administration has killed hundreds of innocent civilians in the Middle East with drones. You know, we've seen the highest number of trans women murdered, most of them women of color, under the Obama administration this past year. You know, we, we have these governments that don't look out for us, so many of us. Um, and in the face of that, and in the face of a, a government that's going to look out for even fewer of us, now we have white women not having access to abortion and birth control. More of us are at stake than we were before. Uh, we, we have to love each other. We absolutely have to love each other. Because if our government isn't going to protect us, when they come for us, we have to protect each other. Um, but that also means that the whole burden of, of loving one another and working through this divisiveness politically is not just on liberals. It's not just on people that voted for Jill Stein and Hillary Clinton or people who didn't vote at all. It's also on Trump supporters. It's also on them. It's also on the people that are complicit in hatred to see through it and to see that we should love one another. So me, as like some radical socialist, I can do all I can to love my neighbor as myself. I can try to see past like hatred and try to, you know, work through uh, my problems with people who voted for Trump or who support his political ideas. Um, but they also have to do the same thing. 
And the truth is, we're not, this divisiveness, this bridge is not, it's not going to be crossed until people on both sides are doing this. And I know very well that I have heard very few Trump supporters having this conversation, but all the time liberals are talking about this. All the time on NPR, in classrooms, in general conversation, people are always talking about how do we bridge this gap? How do we look at the divisiveness that this election has created? How do we fix it? But we're not going to fix it until people on the other side start asking the same questions too. All right. Well, uh, we, over the next couple of days, in fact, a big focus will be on uh, sort of de- developing our musculature for connecting across difference to address shared challenges and problems. And I imagine as we gather students from across the country, uh, we'll probably have a variety of different political views and backgrounds represented. So hopefully we will be getting started some of the processes that, that you've just described. Uh, well, yes, thank you so much for joining us on the Compact Nation podcast. I've really enjoyed the conversation and uh, look forward to working together as we go forward. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, welcome back, everybody, from our second interview. Uh, JR, what did you think about what Yaz had to say? I loved Yaz's interview. Yaz talked about community organizing and getting to know the community. And part of that is the love of local cuisine. And Yaz talked about the apple turnovers made by the older women in the community. And I realized how much I need apple turnovers in my life. Absolutely. (laughs) Having done some community organizing, the best part is when people want to feed you, I think. Had a lot of good breads that way, particularly. Uh, Good. I also, you know, one of the things that was interesting to me, and I think a thread between um, the interview with Robin and the interview with Yaz is just, Uh, this idea that we're not just preparing students to take action later. You know, that's a lot of the conversation, right? College is preparing people to do something at a later point in their life. Some of it is that they're preparing while they're doing. And so I love examples of students taking action right then and there, you know, not waiting till they're into their career, but saying, I have to do something about this now. And the power of that, clearly we have a couple of good examples where that can make a huge difference. Yeah, I was struck again by just this idea of if you're going to get anything done in the world, it involves people who don't already agree about everything, who don't necessarily share a political philosophy or ideology, uh, party identification, figuring out things they do have in common and figuring out ways to get to those. And, you know, I think that's been something we are increasingly challenged to do. And I really do believe it's kind of a cliche thing to say but I think younger people will lead us back to that if we're going to get there so yeah yeah I mean it's a it's a a, it's an amazing skill to be able to help people with a variety of different um, understandings and motivations understand complicated policy and usually environmental stuff is pretty complicated policy so that that's just such a great transferable skill and something we need way more of is just people who are able to have a deep understanding of some of these complicated and serious issues but who can make them real for others too. Mm-hmm. and communicate across difference really for stood sure. out yeah, to me absolutely well let's jump right into our uh, pop culture corner i think we have a couple of things this week um i guess i wanted to just start with one thing my husband and i watched recently was uh oj simpson made in america the espn documentary version um, of looking again at that story. Um, it had some issues in terms of, you know, I'm kind of sick of things being focused on him necessarily. 
and instead of some of the other people involved in that situation. Um, but it was actually a lot more about race relations in our, our country, which I think made it really, really interesting. The thing for me that I'll relate to this work, though, is just, I think, JR, you were mentioning, you know, people are coming with different lenses on things. You know, I remember all of that happening, um, you know, when I was in high school, and my lens at that time made me view it in a very different way and take away very different things that I, that I know a lot of other people viewing the situation took away from it. And watching this documentary helped me see it completely differently than what was in my memory. So some of it is just about, um, kind of about reflection almost, because people can, we talk a lot about people having experiences and then what you can learn from them, but people can have the exact same experience and take away very, very different things depending on their lenses. So it just kind of depends on what's the context, what other information you're getting. There was a lot of context to that situation that as a high school student in Iowa, I did not have. So I don't know, that one was just interesting for me. I would recommend it in some ways, but it's also just an interesting example of, of how people can take away very different things from the same experience. It's one of the, to me, it connects with, you know, what, what we know to be true about how experiential learning needs to be done in order for it to be done well. So, mm -hmm. you know, we know that just putting students out in the world and having them do something is not a complete educational experience. It has to be frame for them, there has to be context, they have to understand the issues in which it's embedded, they have to, after the fact, be asked to analyze what happened, to test their impressions against other evidence, and that's, you know, that's the thing we support, it's what we do, but I think, it, yeah, it's a great illustration of that. Yeah. So who else has something? I've got something. All right. Uh, so I've been listening to a podcast called Undone, and the, the sort of frame for the podcast, the, the idea of Undone, is things that seemed like they were over, and then it turns out they're not. Something about them persists into the future. And there was one that I listened to recently about uh, what to me seems like a famous thing, but I realized we learned that we're about a half generation apart here among <laughs> our uh, your host <laughs> Compact Nation podcast. So for me, I just remember this happening, the death to disco night at Comiskey Park when between games of a doubleheader, the, uh, as a sort of stunt because the ownership of the team liked to do stunts. They had people bring disco records to the park, they put them in a crate, and then they blew up the crate on the field. It turned out that it uh, sparked a riot, basically, and so there was no second game for the doubleheader, and it was kind of a huge disaster. But... Oh, I would never have guessed it would be. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it seems like such a well-thought-out plan. explode thousands of records. But what's interesting about it is, for me, I remembered it as this kind of quirky, ridiculous thing that happened. And actually, again, so one piece of this is, and this was kind of what came out on Undone, I didn't understand that this was this incredibly racially inflected event. It was basically thousands of white people getting together and destroying a whole bunch of records made by African Americans. Mm -hmm. And they interviewed, among other people, African Americans who worked at the park and were there for the event and experienced tremendous hostility in the moment. But then the other thing it was about was just the way that the, the sort of cultural coming down on disco gave rise to all these other forms of dance music that is basically what everybody's been dancing to for the last 30 years. So that was just interesting to me as a cultural phenomenon. But, th but that thing about thinking about the, the long tails in some way that historical events have and the way anything that's happening now is somehow part of something that's been going on for a long time. And again, 
to understand things, it means you really have to know some history and you have yeah. to dig into why things are the way they are and how they came to be. And that when we look at life through these snapshots and we're constantly changing our focus from one moment to another, we just miss so much of what's happening around us. I think it's a great example of, a, of exactly the point I was trying to make too. I mean, it's the same thing. It's like you experience this event through your own lens, but there all this context that you didn't have. Because I think with, with O.J. Simpson, it's the same thing. It was not about this isolated, violent event. Um, there was so much more to it than that, so much history going into it, in terms of at least the prosecution and people's reaction and all of that stuff. So, yeah, that's really interesting. And I think we established that um, I don't remember this event. <laughs> I was two months old. But more interestingly, Jr., do you remember this event? Well, so we were chatting offline before this, and for some of our viewers, this will make me seem really young, and some of our viewers, this may make me seem really old, so it's a mixed bag. I was actually born the day that Disco died, July 10th, 1979, so the night that uh, those records went up in flames, I entered into this world. Like so. a phoenix, they rose. <laughs> In the yeah. form of J.R. Jameson. That's, that's right. what I believe. Yeah. Just, right. Just still lives. Oh and it is named J.R. Right. So what does that even say about me? But it, but as Only I was listening to Andrew talk about that and listening to that podcast, it did make me think, you know, because I was born on that day, I'm very familiar with the event. Of course, I didn't watch it in real time because I was a newborn. Busy being born. <laughs> <laughs> but never once have I thought about that being a racially charged event. And then as you were describing it, I was like, absolutely, of course. that yeah. is racially charged. And so as old or as young, depending on how our listeners may view me, we become, and as educated as we become, we still always have to take a step back and switch our lens and listen to different perspectives to realize, wow, I never thought about that, but that is so, so spot on. I don't have a pop culture quarter. The, so right now I'm uh, working on a book, which takes a lot of my free time. And aside from that, I've been reading The Short Timers by Gustav Hasford, which is the book that was turned into Full Metal Jacket. And I've been sitting here racking my brain thinking about what are the connections to community engagement and the work that we do? <laughs> and I don't want to go there <laughs> in any way. Yeah, so. let's, um, <laughs> let's not. Let's, let's end on a relatively fun and positive and disco related not that that was a fun and positive event though so i don't no, know but, but disco yeah if let's you, end on disco just get let's a disco, disco song in your head yeah, and yeah. let it play you out yeah, yeah. Why, do you want to sing us one no but i do, <laughs> I, do I, I am newly obsessed actually with a disco song from this show river there's a the song uh, everybody should go find the youtube video of tina charles singing i love to love from 1976 oh, that sounds good. and uh, you, you'll be a happy person okay well in there um, once again, thank you to both of you for being here, for being a part of what I think is an interesting discussion. Yes. And thank you to our listeners. Um, don't forget to connect with us. Hashtag Compact Nation Pod. Tell us what you think. Tell us who, sh who we should be talking to, what, sh what we should be talking about, all of that good stuff. And continue to uh, rate us and rank us on iTunes. That always helps with just getting us out to a wider audience. And thank you, Iowa. Yes, thank you, Iowa, for offering this foggy, delightful day. <laughs> and for giving us ray gun shirts. Yes. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to swing an endorsement deal here. <laughs> All right, thanks guys. Bye. Bye.
Compact Nation is produced by Naval Mahdi at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, on behalf of Campus Compact and its network of 1,100 colleges and universities across the United States. To learn more about Campus Compact, check it out online at compact.org. Habiba, tell us what you really think about the Compact Nation. Hi, podcast listeners. Emily Shields back here for just one more quick message. We wanted to take a minute to say thank you and congratulations to our producer. Uh, We've talked about her before. Naval Mahdi is a student at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. She's done a fantastic job on this podcast so far. And over the holiday season, she got married. So please join us in saying congratulations and thank you to Naval.